The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. So think about the scriptures now. We're uh, going to be opening together to the book of Ecclesiastes. Come with me uh, into chapter 7 of the book of Ecclesiastes. Grab a copy of God's Word and turn with me. It's on page 556 if you need a Bible in the pew rack. Uh, open with me to Ecclesiastes. As you're going there, let me give you a metaphor if we think of sermon texts, like baseball pitches for a preacher, some texts are like a slow lob tossed up there for the preacher to just knock out of the park. There are other sermon texts that are a fastball straight down the middle. There are other sermon texts that are the widest curveball you could possibly imagine. Welcome to the curveball this morning, folks. I have been acknowledging to you this entire time that we have been in the book of Ecclesiastes that it is among the most challenging of books in the scriptures. If you've been with us along the way, you have seen that. Uh, if not, you will certainly learn of that this morning. The book of Ecclesiastes is deeply challenging and yet it is emphatically clear on its main point about challenging a notion of life without God. And asking, what is the end of a life without God? Will it really bring joy and delight and pleasure? Well, as we come into our sermon text in chapter 7, we're actually really going to be picking up at the end of chapter 6. Uh, but we, we are approaching this text, and uh, as I gave you one metaphor, let me give you another quick uh, introductory story. Senior prom just happened, right, for our students here. I remember my senior prom. I don't know if they still do this, but when I was in school, you know, they did the very vivid depiction, the head of the senior prom with the car accident and all the rest. Well, a couple of my very good friends were involved in that kind of dramatic retelling in, in our school. They really went all out. They had the life flight helicopter come in and land. Uh, my friend Amy got to take a ride in the life flight helicopter, and uh, my other friend Elizabeth literally got zipped into a body bag and put into an ambulance and rolled away. And, uh, you know, I asked them after the fact, you know, thinking, you know, because you're teenagers, you think, oh, you know, wow, wasn't that cool? And they said, no, actually it was overwhelming. I mean, it was, it was too much, too much. Uh, and I share that story, right, with the notion of, well, administrations do that, something of a scared straight moment, right? Students get the message about, necessary sobriety, not just about drinking and driving, but Ecclesiastes now presents us with a similar message of sobriety. Something of a one long sobriety checkpoint is the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, that can be a bit wearisome at times, as if to say, I get it, right? It's a bit overwhelming, I get the message. Nevertheless, you and I, as Christian believers and those pursuing what it means to, to learn of God and follow Him in our lives, are constantly uh, being asked, what is it that we're living for? What are our essential convictions about life and its purpose? What we find in chapter 7, let me just introduce it to you before we pray and read the text. In chapter 7, we will find a series of comparisons. And you will find a repetition of the word, better. There will be a frequent use of the word better to compare things in life. 
Let me tell you ahead of time that these comparisons will sometimes be jarring. Sometimes it will seem that what appears to be the bad is suggested as the better. What we're normally used to evaluating as preferred will actually be shown to be the foolish rather than the wise, intentionally throwing us off so that we would listen to the wisdom of the preacher in Ecclesiastes and ask ourselves the question, am I living for wisdom or foolishness? That's the big point of this text. The revelation of wisdom or foolishness. So, that's where we're headed this morning in chapter 7. Let's pause and ask God's blessing upon the scriptures as we hear it together. Heavenly Father, now with your word open before us, we pray that your Holy Spirit would so come upon us and reveal to us the truth from your word. That you would illuminate our minds to give us understanding. That you would illuminate our hearts to both receive and acknowledge and confess the truth of your word, that it would find good soil as it's planted as a seed in our hearts to bear fruit to the glory of your name. Lord, help us not to just passively engage in listening, but rather actively hear your word spoken to our very souls this morning, we pray. In the strong name of Jesus, our Savior, we ask it. Amen. And now, Ecclesiastes, starting at chapter 6, at verse 10, through 7, verse 14. This is the Word of God, Ecclesiastes 6, and verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life while he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. May he write eternal truth on our hearts. Do keep your Bible open there as we consider 
this something of a curveball text from the preacher in Ecclesiastes. You'll notice throughout chapter 7 that this reads more like the book of Proverbs, uh, which is why the uh, book of Ecclesiastes is often categorized as a wisdom book in the Old Testament. The wisdom books, Ecclesiastes, Job, um, Proverbs, and Psalms are the wisdom books, oftentimes, of the Old Testament. Well, here is Ecclesiastes sharing with us some wisdom by presenting this series of opposites, a series of comparisons, contrasts, a series of dangers in this fallen world that we live in so that the preacher can illustrate for us the reality of the fact that there is both wisdom in the world and foolishness in the world so that we would ask, what ways are we pursuing? Are we pursuing the way of wisdom or are we pursuing the way of foolishness? He is revealing to us in this passage the difference between the wisdom and the foolishness and the characteristics, actions, and attitudes that reveal the heart of wisdom. Now, here's how we should think about this before we dive into the text. You cannot look at somebody else and look into their heart. You cannot look into their heart and, and see whether they are wise or a fool, but their actions and attitudes reveal either wisdom or foolishness. But the main point is not so much the way you would evaluate someone else, but rather how you would go about evaluating yourself. As I look to the characteristics of my life, as I look to my actions, as I look to my attitudes, do I discern those actions and attitudes that reveal that I am a person of wisdom or a person of foolishness, which is Ecclesiastes' way of saying, are you living life merely under the sun? Meaning, are you pursuing a secular view of the world without God, just chasing on, going about your day without reference to eternity? Or are you a person of wisdom who lives life under heaven, in the sight of God, factoring God into your life? He does this in the book of Ecclesiastes by asking two questions. And those two questions are going to provide the outline of how we're going to look at the whole of this text. And those two questions come out in chapter 6, verse 12. In chapter 6, verse 12, two questions are asked that will then provide the way we'll look at the rest of chapter 7. Those two questions in chapter 6, verse 12 are, For who knows what is good for man while he lives in the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Meaning... What is good? What is the good? What is good? What is right? What is the right way to live? What is good for man is the first question. And then the second question, still in chapter 6, verse 12, the second question is, for who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What comes after? The first question is, what is the good? The second question is, what comes after? You see that very clearly in the text? So let's take those two questions and see how the preacher walks us through the explanation of that. The first question that we are asking is, who knows? Who knows what is good? What is the good? And what you see as you look at chapter 7, especially the first six verses, is in the first six verses, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, that's what he's called, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's called the preacher. The preacher is saying, 
if we want to ask the question, who knows what is good, let me invite you to take stock of your life. To take stock of your life. He does that by looking at the matters of death, sorrow, grief, and laughter. Death, sorrow, grief, and laughter, which are quite the spectrum of things to think about on a beautiful day. Nevertheless, the preacher says we have some things to think about here because these things reveal wisdom or foolishness in our lives. So, look again at the first six verses. The preacher is asking us to meditate on the instructiveness of suffering, death perhaps, grief, as a revelation, an ability to show whether or not we are wise or foolish. In verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1, it comes out right away almost strangely. A good name is better. See the comparison, the word better. You'll see it all throughout. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, those two things might seemingly have no relationship to each other. But again, he's making this comparison. He's saying, just as a good name is better than ointment, so also is the day of one's death better than the day of one's birth. The, the way of going about comparing here is a just as statement. So just as precious ointment. Think about this for a moment. When you think precious ointment, you should think designer perfume, designer cologne, something like that would have been very expensive in the ancient East, as it still is today, the preacher is drawing a contrast between those who spend their life making sure they smell good externally, but have little concern for the odor of their character. The illustration is that of a perfumed outside, rather than the concern of your name and your Character. That's why a good name is better than precious ointment. A solid character, a good reputation is better because it reveals who you really are, not just the scent of who you are externally as you use some external expensive means to cover up who you are. A good name is better than precious ointment. And where is that good name most revealed? The preacher says, not on the day of our birth, and not on our various birthdays, it is revealed in the day of our death. The funeral, the preacher says, thinking about funerals and what they represent, has the ability to reveal wisdom or foolishness. Your varied birthdays, your various birthday celebrations, don't necessarily communicate the fullness of your character. Because you're not thinking to make a representation of your whole life in that moment. But the preacher says, there is a time when your whole life will be thought of, evaluated, and considered. That's why he says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, as said in the announcements, I've just conducted a service last week. I'm doing another one this week. There's something important about the realities of funerals in the life of a Christian believer. It's important for you to attend funerals. Did you know that? Because you, you, you bear witness, which is an important reality, but you are also squaring with realities that are true for you, right? These realities are true for your life as well. We will attend one another's funeral. 
It's a sobering thought, isn't it? And it's supposed to be. The book of Ecclesiastes is not encouraging you to trifle with frivolous things, but to think deeply about the stuff that really matters. Look again at verse 2. He goes on to say, It's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting. It's better to go to someone's house after the funeral service than it is to go to the party, to some random party. Why? Because it's the end of every person that must be taken to heart. Death makes the wise person think about life and take stock of their own to consider, what will people say of me? What will be the report of my character on that day? You know, will, will they just tell a few funny stories that was just some sort of clown? Or will they speak about a life that made a difference, that mattered for eternity, that raised a family perhaps, or cared for my neighbors, or cared for my community in a way that made a difference, that saw life as more than just my own small existence, but poured out for the sake of other people? What will people say about me? It's better, the preacher says, to go to the house of mourning where people are thinking about this. The wise person goes there. He goes on to say, verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The preacher is saying that sorrow, even mourning, is preferred to empty laughter. There are those who laugh loudly and quickly. But Ecclesiastes is saying oftentimes that laughter is very empty and devoid of real meaning. Sorrow is better than empty laughter and indeed even a sad face that is reckoning with eternal realities is to be preferred than the laughing person who is ignoring these truths. So if you're paying attention actually, for as much as I like Billy Joel, Billy Joel is being contradicted here by the preacher, isn't he? Billy Joel who said, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Ecclesiastes says it's the opposite. Why? There's more wisdom in the mournful sorrow and reckoning of eternal things among the saints than there is the foolishness of laughter. Now, I like to laugh. This is not saying that laughter is wrong, but it's saying when it comes to things that really matter, laughter suddenly becomes inappropriate in that time. Isn't it? Ecclesiastes earlier said there's a time to speak a time to laugh, but there's also a time to keep silence. The saints are wise because in their faithful mourning, they're reckoning with eternal realities rather than the empty heart of the fool who expresses himself only by way of empty laughter. It keeps on going in verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth, where I'm getting the sermon title, Walk to a Party, Walk to a Birthday Party, but Run to a Funeral. Why? Because there's greater wisdom to be revealed to you there. I'm not saying don't go to the party. I'm not saying don't celebrate your birthday. But what Ecclesiastes is saying is that there's greater wisdom in some places than others. So even as we walk to a birthday party, we should run to a funeral. The wise person is ready to confront the time of mourning while the fool avoids it, thinking only of empty partying. Again in verse 5, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. Why? Because he tells you in verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Just like a brush pile of thorns lights quickly, crackles loudly, and burns out faster, 
so also the fool who laughs quickly and briefly. Now why, you know, why all this? This is saying that death, sorrow, grief, empty laughter have the ability to reveal either the heart of wisdom or the heart of foolishness. Dear friends, if you are not a person that pauses to think about eternal realities, the Bible says you might be walking the path of a fool. If you're not considering these things, if you are one who would rather have empty laughter than a heartfelt, contented, faithful sorrow, the fool is one who attempts to live their life under the sun apart from God to find some sort of meaning and pleasure and satisfaction without God. But the heart of a wise person knows that eternal realities are present even in the midst of this life. and We must live life in the sight of God under heaven. So, wisdom and foolishness are revealed there, but they're also revealed in our trials. If you don't want to go so far as thinking about those ultimate realities, wisdom and foolishness are also revealed in your day-to-day -day life as you experience trials, and that's what verses 7 through 12 are doing as they are still answering the question, what is the good? What is right? What is the good that we should be pursuing? Wisdom and foolishness are revealed in the day of sorrow and death, but they're also revealed in the midst of daily life and the enduring of trials. You see that in verses 7 through 10. He thinks about these various things. Compromise, impatience, anger, discontent. And again and again, he says, these things reveal the heart. These daily trials reveal either the heart's foolishness or wisdom. What are the trials mentioned here? Verse 7, oppression. Oppression drives the wise into madness and bribe, a bribe corrupts the heart. How does the wise person respond to the oppressed and to bribes? The tools of evil, it stirs them up, the preacher says. It drives them to madness. They're, they're frustrated with life in a fallen world and the evil oppression and bribes that take place. These trials cannot be ignored by the wise. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning because the end reveals the purpose of God in ways that you cannot see oftentimes at the beginning of things. When you go through your trials in life, how many of us have often said, I have no clue what the point of this is. I have no clue what the purpose of this is. Verse 8 is saying that we can press on. The trial of patience, better is the end than its beginning because in the end the purposes are revealed. The foolish person says, I wish I never went through that trial. The wise person says, I see the tracing of God's sovereign hand in the midst of this trial. And let me say to those of you who are going through a particular trial right now, you're tempted to say, I, I can't trace God's hand. I don't see it. Hear the wisdom of God's word. Better is the end than its beginning. God's purposes will be revealed. Or as the hymn writer says, God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. God's purposes will be revealed. In verse 8, you have the trial of patience. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit, or the arrogant, the haughty. You have various things that try your patience in your life, don't you? Those trials are revealing a heart of wisdom, a heart of foolishness. Verse 9, you have the trial of anger. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges 
in the hearts of fools. To carry it literally, anger takes up residence and lives in the heart of a foolish person. Are you an angry person? If we are to be wise, we are to give, to carry the metaphor, anger the eviction notice. You might take up residency for a time. You might rent out space in my heart, but you must not live here if I'm to be wise. There are more through verse 12, but the point remains the same, that these different attitudes and trials, these different experiences, reveal hearts of wisdom and foolishness. Again, the foolishness is living life apart from God. So in this first section, when we're asking the question, what is the good? We should likewise be asking the same question, asking, am I evaluating my life? Am I considering my character? Am I considering both my daily living and the end of my days? And when I think about it, what will be revealed? In answering the question from chapter 6, verse 12, what is good for man to ask, am I wise or am I a fool? Not by just any standard, but by God's standard. That's the first question. The second question comes still, chapter 6, verse 12. Not just what is good, but now, what comes after? For who can tell man, chapter 6, verse 12, the last part of verse 12, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What comes after this? And then, chapter 7, 13, and 14 are the answer to that question. Look with me again. Chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. The preacher says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Chapter 6, verse 12 says, What will be after? Chapter 7, 13, and 14 answers the question by saying, we're thinking about the wrong thing. This notion of crookedness, if you want to remind yourself back in chapter 1, verse 15, the preacher likewise asked, what is crooked cannot be made straight? This idea of crooked here. He is saying to us, if you want to think about what comes after, if you want to think about eternal things, he says in verse 13, you need to consider the work of God. Factor God in. Do not live your life like God doesn't exist. Don't live your life like you are your own little God. Don't live such a secular worldview because you cannot ignore the reality that God exists. So consider Him, verse 13 says. Consider the work of God. Consider life under heaven and before God. Then saying, as you consider the work of God, who can make straight what He has made crooked? What does that mean? Who can make straight what God has made crooked? Again, repeating from chapter 1, verse 15. When, when Ecclesiastes uses the word crooked here, it's not talking about evil or corrupt. Sometimes we use the word crooked to say, oh, such and such is a crooked salesperson, right? And we mean they're corrupt. We mean they're evil. We mean they're wrong. But when the book of Ecclesiastes uses the word crooked here, it's talking about things that we can't figure out. It's talking about mysteries that we don't understand. It's talking about pathways that we can't trace, right? Crooked in the sense of, I don't understand. This is talking about, to use this word, the inscrutability of God. 
the inscrutability of God's ways. Our inability to take God to court and put him on the stand, demanding that he answer all of our questions, demanding that he explain himself completely, demanding that he tell us all of the infinite depths of his eternal wisdom. Ecclesiastes says, that's not for you. And the wise person knows it. The wise person knows that there are things in life that appear to be straight and appear to be crooked and it is not our place to demand that all things be straight and make complete sense. And so if you're a person that's tempted to do that in your heart, right, to demand to God, no, explain yourself, submit yourself to my questioning. I demand that everything be straight, everything be clear, everything make total sense. Ecclesiastes says, that's not a wise person. A wise person humbly submits in the acknowledgement that they are the creature, not the creator, that there are things that will always appear to be to them in their perception, limited perception, right? Crooked, uncertain, easy to misunderstand. We ask God questions all the time, don't we? And that's not wrong. It's not wrong to ask God, why? Why are you doing this? Why this? Why these sequence of events? Why this diagnosis? Why this trial? Why, why, why? God is not offended by our question asking. The question is, is are we asking it with the right spirit? Namely, Lord, why and what are you doing in my life through this? The wise person looks at what is crooked and rather than demand from God a full answer, says, Lord, what are, you, what are you transforming me into? What are you teaching me in the midst of this? Dear friends, we will not figure all of life out, but we, all, we are called to submit all of our life to a God who knows, who cares, who is, if you like, at the wheel and in control, knows what he is doing. Both days, Ecclesiastes says in verse 14, both days of prosperity and in days of adversity. Meaning, throughout it all, right? The full spectrum. So that we would learn to trust Him. God has made the day both of prosperity and the day of adversity so that we would learn to trust Him in the midst of it. Jesus said something similar to this, didn't He? Do you remember what Jesus said about this? He said, why do you worry? And who can you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? As if to say, your worrying doesn't change the reality, right? You're being called to submit to the Lord in the midst of this. Specifically, in that context, Jesus was talking about the Father's heavenly and compassionate care for His children and His provision. And Jesus' point was not to worry, not because we don't have things in this life which are worrisome. We do, don't we? We have all kinds of things that are worrisome. Jesus calls on us not to worry. And Ecclesiastes is calling us to trust in the face of things which are crooked. Not because we don't have things to worry about, but because faith, trust, living life in the sight of God becomes a greater reality for us than even our worry and the message of Ecclesiastes is the same. Learn to live your life. Learn to face your lot with the days of adversity and in the days of plenty, days of prosperity. Live your life in the light of eternity. And so we should say here at the end, as we think of Jesus actually, that this text in Ecclesiastes mirrors wonderfully the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus is teaching about 
anxiety and worry comes from. We've recently completed that series. A couple of months ago, we finished our time through the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember how Jesus ends that Sermon on the Mount, that great, incredible teaching? Remember how he finishes it? He says, listen, listen to me. I have taught you all of these things so that you would believe them and so that you would obey and so that by your obedience, your life will be transformed. Jesus says in the exact same way as the preacher here in verse 7, the foolish person tunes me out, disobeys, and as a result, their life falls. But the wise person, they not only hear my words, they believe them, they obey, and their life is upheld on the last day. So, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, individuals, whomever you are, Ecclesiastes is asking, are you living life in light of eternity? What really matters? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you have given your Son to us. Give us the full pathway of wisdom that we might not walk the pathway of the fool. Lord, help us to be those who are not so concerned with other people's wisdom or foolishness, but rather by your Holy Spirit evaluating our own life for that, that we might call others to see Jesus Christ as compelling and glorious, that we might to worship him alongside of them. So Lord, bless your word to us. May we be so wise to your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.